Well, if you could turn with me now in your Bibles to the book of Philippians, the letter of Philippians. This is a letter of Paul to a church in the city of Philippi that we will learn about in just a few moments. We just have two verses this morning, verses 1 and 2, that I'm going to read from. Hear now the reading of the word of the Lord. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus ends the reading of the word of the Lord. May he bless it to us this morning. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you now and we ask that you would speak to us this morning. Lord, would you encourage our hearts with the good news from the book of Philippians. Help us, Lord, as we come to you, that you would pour out wisdom upon us and that we would understand ourselves truly in light of your word. Call faith where there is none. Encourage faith where it is weak and strengthen faith that it may be strong, that we may rest in Christ Jesus, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Have you ever been discouraged? I think that goes without question that, yes, of course you've been discouraged. But are you discouraged right now? Are there things in your life where you think, I'm really discouraged. Things are not going the way that I had hoped. Have you ever gotten news when the wind was just sucked out of you and you were left in one sense breathless? Not the good kind of breathless, but the kind where you think, I have no idea what to do with what is happening in my life right now. Often these things come when financial support falls through. When you think to yourself, I thought I was going to get the money I needed for this, and it doesn't come through. I remember a time in my life when I was in college, and my mother called me and said, Nate, we can't pay for your college anymore. Your dad's business is beginning to go under. I was in the middle of my second semester in college, and I thought, what in the world am I going to do? The wind was sucked out of me. I'd worked and was in college and had hoped that I would finish, and I had about a year and a half left of studies. And what did this mean for me? I was very discouraged. But it doesn't have to just be finances. It can be a health issue. That call from the doctor, that visit from the doctor that comes and they give you the news about a diagnosis and you think to yourself, I have no idea what to do here. You're discouraged. The future looks bleak. You get a phone call from a family member that somebody is sick, that somebody is hurt, somebody that you love has died. Maybe it's a circumstance in ministry, in the church, a place that you love, and tensions are rising, and you're discouraged because it doesn't seem to get resolved. That no matter how much time and effort is put into it, that you think, is there any hope in this circumstance? Maybe it was when the previous pastor, Mark Jenkins, left, there was discouragement thinking, what is the Lord going to do and how is he going to care for us as a church body? There's much uncertainty that we face in this life and there's ample reason why we would get discouraged. And I think that this letter of Philippians, this book we have before us, is a message of encouragement to Christians like us. 
and all the various circumstances that we face in life. There is continual reasons for you and I to be discouraged about what is going on around us in life. And I think that's why we need this little book for us today, is to provide encouragement for us, people's God, or God's people. That God looks down and He knows our frame, He knows our circumstance, and He has given this to us to encourage us. Well, I want this morning to take a look at who this church is, who is this church of Philippi, and why is Paul writing this letter to them as a sort of introduction as we begin to examine this book over the coming weeks and maybe even months. There's a problem in this church. There's actually several problems in this church that are prompting Paul to write this letter that we're going to look at this morning. He points out three different problems in the church in Philippi. And there are many reasons that this church has to be discouraged, that the future may look bleak for them. The first thing is that this church is anxious about news over Paul. This church has heard that Paul, the apostle that had come to them and brought them to faith in Jesus Christ, is now in prison. What does this mean for them? That The one who they look to for leadership and guidance is now in prison. What does this mean about God, that this mighty God who saves is now one of his servants is locked up and locked away? The second thing is that there's disunity in this church. We don't know the specific thing that has happened, but it's evident from the book of Philippians as we examine this that there is cause for disunity. And this church seems to begin to be fracturing from the inside. And there's two particular women in this text that there is some kind of strife occurring between them. And Paul is seeking to bring unity to this church. And there's a third thing. There's those who oppose the faith of the believers in this church. There's not only situations beyond them, situations inside of them, But there are situations coming against them. There are people who want to disrupt their faith and bring them to trust into something else besides Christ and Christ alone. It seems from inside and outside, these people are being troubled. And so what does Paul have to say to these Philippians? To encourage them. To bring hope to this little church. But ultimately, I believe that this message that Paul gives to them is that the pathway to glory, the pathway that we would seek to find hope to glory, comes through obedience to the point of death. It's an odd message, if you will think about it. You don't tell people typically who are discouraged that the way to hope and glory, the way through this circumstance, is actually through dying. That's the last message that you would think to give to people who are discouraged. But that's precisely what Paul does again and again in this text, this book of Philippians that we will see over the coming weeks and months. Paul wants to redirect their hope. He wants to shape and form the way that they think about their lives, and he wants to shape and form the way that we think about our lives, the way that we think about ministry. So that we would actually face this world before us with courage, with hope in the right things, in the right posture 
towards everything that comes against us. So there's two questions I would like to ask this morning about this book as we introduce ourselves to it. Who are the Philippians and why is Paul writing this letter? So who are the Philippians? Paul tells us in the beginning, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and saints. Sometimes we read a text and we think, what? who are these people? We feel disconnected from their lives of people 2,000 years ago. And we think, what does Scripture have to tell me today, 2,000 years ago, where we have rockets going into outer space, satellites surrounding us, beaming internet to us, cell phones with screens that have access to more information than has ever been produced in human history? What does this little tiny church in a corner of modern-day Greece have to say to us today to people 2,000 years later. So who are these people? Well, the first thing is we should notice the city of Philippi. It's a city that is actually in existence today in modern-day Greece, across the Aegean Sea from Turkey. It's about 10 miles up off of the coast of the Aegean Sea, and it's a little town now. It's a, mostly a farming community today. So this city is in existence today. But at the time of the New Testament, this was a very significant city. And if you want to turn with me to Acts chapter 16, we learn much about this city in the book of Acts. Paul has been going on a route preaching the gospel through Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, and then he hears this, he has this vision where a man appears to him in this vision and says, Come over here, Paul, and preach to us, in essence. In Acts chapter 16, Paul has this vision, and he goes over there to preach the gospel over in the country of Macedonia. And Paul says here, in, in verse, excuse me, in verse, six, in verse 6, it says, They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia and have been forbidden. Microphone, okay, thank you. I'm going to switch over here. Are we good here? All right. In verse 6, Paul says, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they came up to Mysia, they attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So here Paul has this vision of a man standing in Macedonia, which is current day northern Greece and the city of, uh, or the country of North Macedonia. And this, this vision prompts Paul to leave what is modern day Turkey, travel across the sea, and arrive at the other side and to continue preaching the gospel. And then he continues on and arrives at Philippi shortly after. Verse 12, and from there 
we went to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. So we learned, first of all, that Philippi is a city of Macedonia and a Roman colony, meaning this is a significant city. History tells us about many of the current events that occurred in the city leading to it becoming a Roman colony. And now here it is, a important city in this whole region that people come to for both legal and civil issues. And Paul continues to tell about what happens there. Paul says, we come to Philippi, we settle there, and we remained in the city some days. Now, this city was a rather wealthy region. There are gold mines that were up in the hills and mountains right outside of the city. And they had been taking some amounts of 1,000 talents worth of gold, which is millions and millions of dollars every year they're taking from this city as tribute to the, to the kings of the cities around. But it also is a very religious city. Paul continues on and describes of a situation where they go on the Sabbath to go find a place to pray, and they encounter a God-fearing woman who eventually becomes converted. We know her as Lydia. And according to one scholar, Peter T. O'Brien, it was a religiously syncretistic city. At the center of the city is the imperial cult, where you worship Roman emperors, It was on full display, yet the city included many altars to Greek gods and also to even Egyptian gods and goddesses. So there is much going on here of religiosity in the city of Philippi. And the city, in one sense, championed themselves on their religious tolerance and inclusiveness. You have a foreign god, well, bring it here. We don't want to leave anybody out. While on the one hand, the city seemed to be tolerant, it seemed to be inclusive of other religions, the fact of the matter was something else. Reality was quite different. In Acts 16, after they are preaching the gospel, you hear this scenario, this situation of a demon-possessed girl who comes crying out behind Paul as he's going around preaching the gospel. Verse 17 says, She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. She's likely screaming as Paul is going around trying to preach the gospel. She's interfering with his work. Now, Paul puts up with this for several days, but in one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, Paul says this, And she kept doing this, Paul having become greatly annoyed. Paul himself even gets annoyed. He sees this woman is disrupting him constantly, screaming over him. I mean, you as yourself would also become annoyed if somebody was following you around day after day, screaming and yelling and interfering with your work of what you're trying to do. So then Paul casts this demon out of here. He brings this to an end so that he can continue preaching the gospel. But her handlers, she's a slave, her handlers realize what happens. This demon was a source of fortune-telling, and they utilize this young woman to bring wealth to themselves. Well, now their means of gaining wealth is gone. And what do people do when we get ang- what happens when our money goes away? We get angry. They get angry at Paul. When the owners, verse 19, see their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. 
And then they make this charge. And when they had brought them to the magistrate, they said, these men are Jews. And they are disturbing our city. So apparently Jews are not that favorable in this society. Jews themselves are looked at as kind of a lesser than religion already in this culture. So while there seems to be some kind of religious tolerance, it only goes so far. And now they're making this accusation against Paul, who himself is a Jew, converted to Jesus Christ. So there's this appearance of tolerance, this appearance of acceptance, but it did not go very deep. And so this city is not unlike our time, where there is proclamation everywhere around us of tolerance, acceptance. But the moment you dig down deep, the moment you press, that only goes so far. And people reject. People say, I don't want you to be here. That those phrases, that religiosity is just a veneer over what is really underneath. But Paul is faithful in this city. He preaches the gospel despite what happens to him. He ends up getting thrown in prison right after this. God miraculously rescues him, and many people are converted. Unlikely people. Several women we know right off the bat are converted by Paul. And that begins this church. And then a jailer, a person who is holding Paul in jail, gets converted himself. These are not These are just ordinary people. These aren't the high, important people of society. And from this group begins a little church in Philippi. We learn about Lydia, the seller of purple, and her household with her are brought to faith. Euodia and Syntyche, two other women who show up in this passage later on, are other women that are brought to faith in Christ. And then we learn in just a few years, this church has a leadership structure already established. They have bishops, or as our text translates it, overseers and deacons. They have elders and they have deacons. They have an authority structure already in place. This seems to be a healthy and thriving church right away. But we learn other things about this church in Scripture. We learn about from the book of Philippians their generosity. What prompted this whole thing is this church sent a young man whose name is Epaphroditus over to Paul. Well, actually, we don't know if he's young. A man over to bring money to support Paul in his missionary journey. Now, Paul did not ask for this money. They just care for Paul because of his service among them. But they send financial support. We learn about this in in Philippians chapter 2, that Paul tells them about Epaphroditus, who sends, he is sending back to them, and he thanks them for this gift. But there is another place in Scripture we learn about this church as well, and that is in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And many of you know this passage. It's a famous passage. And this is what Paul says there. We want you know, to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Philippi is one of the leading cities in Macedonia. It is the first church that has been planted in Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. 
For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own free will, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not of the, as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and by the will of God to us. So this is a generous church. It does not seem like they are financially well off. They don't have many rich or wealthy people in their congregation, but Scripture tells us that they are continually giving to the ministry of Paul and the ministry that Paul is bringing to the churches in Jerusalem where there is many who are poor. So there is in what appears to be a thriving congregation, a church that seems to be doing well, leadership structures, many who have come to faith in Christ from all walks of life, they're giving support to missions, to the work of the church abroad. But you would think, why would Paul write to this church? Why would Paul write to them? They seem to be doing well. They're generous. They're giving. Well, as we're going to learn in this book as we go through it, that even the churches that are doing well seemingly, need encouragement to continue on. Philippians chapter 1, Paul prays for this very thing. In in verse 6, he says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul does not want these believers to become complacent in their lives. He knows they're facing many dangers and challenges outside and inside, despite all this good that's going on. But there's something that's interesting about this. Paul does not point to the size of this church. We don't actually know how many people are in this church. Is it five? Well, they have elders and, and deacons, so apparently it's over probably 10 or 15 or 20. Is it hundreds? We don't know. Paul does not tell us the size of this church. That is not an important detail to him about how big this church is. But what we do know about this church is the kind of church that it is. The kind of church that Paul is excited to write to, that he is thankful for. And that is what is important. That is what Paul considered significant. And that is how we can begin to think about ourselves Is it our size that determines our significance? Or is it, as Paul shows, the faithfulness to the gospel ministry? Despite everything that goes on around them, their poverty, the disunity, the opposition, the discouragements. So this is a little about the Philippians that Paul is writing this letter to, that we can find ourselves in a similar time and circumstance to them. But our second question this morning is, why is Paul writing this letter? Now, in one sense, I have given to us a presentation of why Paul is writing in this letter. But I want to look at a little more detail of why he is writing this letter. First, we know that Paul is in prison. He tells us in in chapter 1, verse 12, that he is there. He's in prison. That what's happened to him has really served to to advance the gospel. And it's been made known that his imprisonment is for Christ. So here's Paul, most likely in Rome, is imprisoned for the sake of Christ. And the Philippians are concerned for him, so they send support. Paul is in prison, and then the Philippians send Epaphroditus, 
on his way to go bring financial support to Paul. And on his way, Epaphroditus gets sick. Now, we don't know why he gets sick or how he does, but apparently it's a result of the arduous journey, the difficult journey that he has to go on. And Paul considers this journey as this illness that results from his journey. It says, indeed, he was near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. And I am the more eager to him to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice again, and that I may be less anxious. Verse 30, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. And so one reason that Paul writes this letter is to encourage them that not only Paul's ministry is not compromised, that actually it's thriving, but also that one of their own dear brothers, who they thought was at the point of death, is now restored and coming back to them. He's sending good news back to this congregation. The second thing is that we learn that there is disunity in this church. There seems to be a a prominent disagreement between two women in this church who apparently are of some significance. We don't know what these women are disagreeing over. Is it something about ministry? Do they have different conceptions of the way something should be done? Is there something in their personal life that is causing this disagreement that's happening in the church? The chapter 4 tells us about these two women. Verse 2, it says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. That there's disunity among them. And apparently it's spilled out over into the rest of the church. Paul says in chapter 1, verse 27, he says, Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to you or see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And then in chapter 2, he spells out this unity that he wants to see among them, and the attitude that they are supposed to reflect is that of Christ. Chapter 2, verse 2, Complete my joy of being of the same mind, having the same love. And they're struggling. What may have been a small disagreement between two people in the church has now spilled out into the rest of this church. And they're beginning to feel this sense of, are we going to make it as a church? Can we stay together if we don't have the Apostle Paul here to minister to us? And maybe you have felt this in this church. Maybe you have disagreed with somebody in this church and thought, I don't know if I can remain here as I disagree with this person about this situation or circumstance. Now, granted, there are reasons to disagree and to fracture apart, to leave other people who are preaching a false gospel. Galatians spells this out very clearly for us, that there are good reasons why we should separate from those who teach false doctrine. That's not what Paul seems to see as the issue here, but this just seems to be an issue in the church. And so he wants to encourage them to an example of humility. But the third thing is that there's those that oppose the faith of these Christians. And verse 28 of chapter 1, And not frightened by anything by your opponents. There are people that oppose, oppose them. 
And we learn about these people who oppose them in chapter 3. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. We looked at this passage a few weeks ago, and we'll look at it in more detail in the coming months and weeks. But these are people who oppose their faith. They actually want to get the Christians to rest in themselves, to trust that they have sufficiency in themselves to live the Christian life, that they can do it on their own. They want to put glory in themselves. And so these are the issues that are before this Philippian church, and that is why Paul is writing this letter. Discouragement, disunity, and doctrine under attack. Does this sound familiar? Does this feel like something that is in your life? Does this feel like something that we encounter in the church today? I'm certain it is. I'm certain this is something that we all face. And all this happened just a few years after the Apostle Paul left this church. I've heard people say, if we could only get back to the early church. And I wanted to say, have you read the New Testament? Within a couple of years, this church is already facing challenges. And we're no different today. We need the same gospel proclaimed to us that Paul proclaims to them. So how does Paul seek to help them? How does he seek to help them? What is he going to point to again and again in this, in this book? Well, many commentators say that the center of this passage, of this book, the, the point of this book is in verses 27 and 28, where he talks about how he wants to hear that they're standing firm, they're striving, they're working together in unity, and they're not being overcome and frightened by their opponents that are coming against them. Now, I think that is reason Paul is writing, but he wants to get at a truth for these Christians so that they can do those things. And that is what I want us to see is the point of this text. Because Paul doesn't simply tell them, stand firm. He doesn't simply tell them, be united. Work hard to do this. He doesn't simply say, don't be afraid. He could do that. But that's not what Paul does completely and entirely in the end. He goes to show where our unity comes from. He goes to show where our strength to stand against those who oppose us comes from. He goes to show us where our ability to stand firm in our faith, in the face of all the challenges that we face in this life, all the things that want to discourage us, and make us feel like we are ready to give up. Paul lays out here clearly. See, Paul sees behind the problem of discouragement of life circumstances is a misplaced hope. Yes, there are things that can cause sorrow, but to become overcome by them is a fruit of misplaced hope. And what does he do? In this letter, he points them to the glory of Christ. This word glory shows up in this book six different times. He wants to point them to Jesus Christ to say, your place of glory is in heaven with Jesus Christ. And he lifts Jesus up in chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. He sees the problem of their disunity is from focusing on themselves. They're most concerned about themselves. And he wants to say, 
No, the way that we have unity is by looking to Jesus Christ, by looking to what he has done and resting in that. He wants them to place their glory in heaven with Jesus Christ. And Paul sees the other problem, that the problem of the opponents opposing their doctrine of their faith in Jesus Christ is placing hope in themselves. That's what these men are trying to do. And Paul is saying, no, I want you to place your hope in the glory of Jesus Christ who is in heaven. That is where he's going to turn this church time and time again, is to look to Jesus Christ. That in the midst of all the trials that you face in this life, this is where your hope and this is where your strength is going to come from. All the circumstances that you faced. And he does this by showing that trusting and obeying Christ, even to the point of death, is not the end of glory, but it is the pathway to it. That Jesus Christ himself trod this path before them. It's more than that. That he trod this path for them. That Jesus Christ is the one who has exalted the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And he did it by going through death. And this is what we see Paul saying about himself. Ultimately, I'm not afraid to die. Timothy risks his life. Epaphroditus risks his life. What is it that's going to make us willing to not look out for our own interests, but risk our own lives for the sake of the gospel? It's knowing Jesus Christ who has risked his life, who has submitted himself to God the Father at the cost of his own life. And that is the hope that Paul holds out to these believers, is saying, Jesus Christ has done it all. For you. It is his obedience and it is his death that leads us to glory. And that is the hope that this letter of Philippians sets out to us today. That Jesus Christ is our hope throughout all the circumstances that we will face in this life. And this little letter presents to us an enormous mountain of encouragement that Jesus Christ has done it all. And that is why we can face all the opposition, all the challenges, all the discouragements that come into our life. is because Jesus Christ has entered into that death and he conquered it. And there is glory that awaits those who trust in Jesus Christ. So I encourage you to look with this letter with me in these coming weeks and to look to see Jesus Christ. And even today, to see Jesus Christ who has died for you and who has raised for you and who is seated at the right hand of God the Father in glory for you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give thanks to you for Jesus who has submitted himself to your will no matter what it cost him. And Lord, we are not sufficient to do those things of ourselves and we need Jesus always. Lord, I pray that you would work your word into our lives to see how much we need him day after day. Encourage us today, encourage us in the days that are to come, no matter what we face, that we have hope that we will live again with Jesus. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.